We believe that Moses wrote down the, the law of God, which was given by God, just like the, the Jews, and that Joshua conquered Jericho, and that David ruled over Israel, and that Daniel survived the lion's den. Everything the Jews believe as well. Now, of course, when I say Christians, I, I mean Bible-believing Christians, not the, the liberal Christians who reject the teachings of the Old Testament, but Bible-believing Christians. When I say Jews, I'm also believing, talking about Jews who believe, actually, in the Old, Old Testament. Uh, there's many liberal Jews today who are just as liberal, more so than the most liberal of Christians. Right? But Christians believe, embrace the Old Testament, which is the, the Jewish Bible, and the faith of the Christian faith really flows from the Bible. Uh, but Christians have another testament that they believe. We, we believe in the New Testament. It's the, the second half of our Bible, if you will. Right? It begins with the Gospels, which tells the story of Jesus, and then continues on the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church, and, and then goes to the epistles, which interpret then the life of Jesus. And, and Christians believe that the New Testament really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is the second act. It, it is the... Um, the, the story which is completed. It completes the Old Testament. In fact, I'm not sure you know this, but that's why Jewish people, um, oftentimes when they come to Christ, they're identified as completed Jews. I'm not sure if you, any of you ever heard of that before. But completed in, in the sense that when a Jew comes to faith, it's not so much that they're converted from another religion into Christianity. Rather, it's that their faith has been completed. That which was begun in the Old Testament comes and is completed in the New as they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. You might say it this way, right? There's nothing more Jewish than for a Jewish person to believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And it's right here that you see why the, the Jews reject the New Testament. Because at issue, the question is the question of Jesus. Is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? The New Testament says that he is, and so Christians embrace that as the reality, and, and the Jews say that Jesus isn't, right? And so they reject the New Testament. And, and it's no accident that Christ is, is a different way of saying Messiah. Um, the, the word that's translated Christ, the anointed one, he is the Messiah. We, we miss the use of this word oftentimes when we say Jesus Christ is really Jesus the Messiah, is, is what's being said there. And Christians are those who are following Messiah. We are Messiah-ins. We are, are those who follow Messiah. And, and the crux of the difference really is, is right here. Right? We, we trust that Jesus fulfilled was the Old Testament, was the Messiah, and the Jews reject that. And so one of the questions comes is why? Why is it that, that that is the case? I'm not sure you've ever thought about that question, but why is it that when the, the Moses is read in the synagogues, the Jews just don't see? Well, one verse that might help is 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 14, that even Paul speaks in his days of the Jews, but their minds were hardened. He says, for to this day, and Paul was writing back then, AD 50, AD 60, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... That same veil remains unlifted because it's only lifted through Christ is it taken away. And to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. There's this veil of unbelief that lies over the hearts of the Jews. 
but will change someday, as Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, when they look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. But until this day, they are, they are hardened, and we just need to trust the Lord to open the hearts of the Jews, which he promises to do. The salvation will come to all the Jews. Romans chapter 11 speaks about that. Well, this Christmas season, as we've been thinking about uh, Messiah, uh, I, I preached a message last Sunday about Messiah is coming. And I just picked a few of the dozens and dozens of verses that could have been picked from the Old Testament just to, to show that prophesy of, of, of this Messiah is coming. Tried to place ourselves in the situation of the Jews before Jesus came. Um, or you could even place yourself in the modern day Jews, as they look at the Old Testament, they, they, they think that Messiah is coming. And we looked at, if you remember, Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the Messiah, one that prophesies of the seed of the woman coming and destroying, conquering the seed of the serpent, which Jesus did when he conquered Satan on the cross. Uh, second passage we looked at, Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses prophesies another prophet who's come, who will come, right? Bigger, better than Moses, if you will. And he, Moses says, listen to him. And that, of course, we believe is Jesus, who is the better prophet. We looked at Psalm 132, verse 11, which is a, a claims the promise of God that he made to David, that one of, his so, thrones, one of his sons will sit on his throne forever. We as Christians believe that was fulfilled in Jesus when he ascended on high. And, and we also looked at Isaiah chapter 9, and verse 6, which speaks of a baby being given to us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the son describes Jesus as the wonderful counselor and mighty God, God in the flesh. And we looked at just four of really the dozens of, of passages that we could have looked at that point explicitly to this one who's going to come as the Messiah, um, right, right, right where the dividing line is, right? Where, where Christians see those prophecies and see them fulfilled in Jesus, but the Jews reject that. They don't believe that Jesus fulfilled them. To them, they're still looking for a Messiah. So it's, it's Messiah's coming, or you might say it this way, Messiah is still coming. They're still looking for him. But for us, of course, today, we believe that Messiah has come. He came yesterday, if you will, right? Christmas time. That's why my message on Christmas Eve was Messiah is here, right? And I've just tried to take you through the, the storyline of the Bible, um, just took the Old Testament, and then we looked at just the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. And now we're going to look at beyond that, and we're going to consider, okay, what does it look like now that Messiah has come? Because the coming of the Messiah really is, is the wedge. On the one hand, you have those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and on the other hand, you have those who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and, and right here, what you do with Messiah, what you do with Jesus, whether he was the Messiah dictates upon where you're going to go in, in your faith. And we even see this, right, particularly true in the story of the wise men coming. So turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 1 ends with the story of Jesus being born. Messiah is here. And now in, in chapter 2, we, we see this events taking place sometime after Jesus was born. We read in chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now these wise men were probably astrologers of some type from the east. They studied the stars. 
These wise men also had some scriptures as well, for they knew that this star represented the born king of the Jews. The only way you're going to get that specificity is if you have the scriptures as well. They're, they're probably men from Persia who are familiar with the scriptures that Daniel wrote. Remember, Daniel was exiled back then. He wrote scriptures there. They probably had these. And uh, when this uh, miraculous star took place and they interpreted the times of Daniel and, and how it might be the Messiah, they calculated it out and then they came to Jerusalem, making that long journey, believing that Messiah would come. And, and they were looking around asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Right? They want to find out where this king was or this Messiah, right? this, this Savior is going to come. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. He's troubled, of course, because another king is not good for the sitting king. Um, and then he says in verse 5, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes to so the people... He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written in the prophet, Micah 5.2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Now, the religious elite knew the Old Testament scripture. They knew Micah's prophecy. They knew that Messiah would be born in Jerusalem. So it was told these wise men from the east. So Herod then summoned the wise men, verse 7, secretly and ascertained from them the time in which the star had appeared. And, and he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said this, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, you know that was a ruse, right? He was the king of this other king. Find him, right, so I can worship him with a sword, right, to, to kill this little baby is what he was planning to do. But verse 9, after listening, they went on their way. Now, I, I find it interesting here to note that the wise men went alone to, to Bethlehem. The priests and the scribes who knew that the baby was to be born in Bethlehem, who, who heard of this stirring of this fulfillment of these people coming from the east looking for this Messiah, this king who was going to be born, they didn't go to see if this prophecy was indeed fulfilled. I believe it was a, a demonstration of their unbelief, the unbelief that carries through today in the hearts of many Jews. Anyway, as these wise men left, we read in verse 9 that uh, after listening to the king, they, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So lest you think this was some star way out in the skies, right, where the James Webb telescope is going to, to find and look. No, this was a star that could identify a house. This was probably the Shekinah appearance of the glory of God somehow miraculously pointing them, bringing them down right to this house where the child was. Not the manger scene. The child was probably you know, even up to two years old at, at this point. And they says, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we see the proper response to the coming of the Messiah, which is worship. These men fell down and worshipped him. In fact, this is the response of all who believe and trust in Jesus. We fall down and worship at the feet of Jesus Christ, that which the scribes and Pharisees did not do because they were nowhere to be seen. Right? The only one who believed was back there in Jerusalem, King Herod. He wanted to kill Jesus, but his belief was more like, what if? And his strategy to kill all the infants was more like insurance. Right? If, perhaps, maybe, 
Um, we need to kill this child. But God protected Jesus. He warned the wise men not to return to Jerusalem. And he warned Mary and Joseph to seek refuge in Egypt. We read about that in verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod that the scripture might be fulfilled. Right? But here, here's the point. Right when Messiah came, there was a divide. Some believed he was the Messiah, like these wise men from the east, like Christians today believe so. And then there were others who didn't, like, for instance, even Herod the king sort of believed, but he wanted to destroy him. But the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes were so um, just unconcerned and unexcited. They didn't even go down to Bethlehem to see if it was the case. They didn't believe. Well, this is the story that plays out over the New Testament. Is Jesus really the Messiah or not? Some embraced him, some didn't. Some rejected him. And that's why he died upon the cross. The crucial point of where Christianity and Judaism divides. Either Messiah is coming or Messiah has come. Well, I want to overview this morning the the New Testament for you to show you that Messiah has come and some of the implications on it. Uh, Last week, we looked at some passages from the Old Testament from different genre, right? We looked at from Moses in uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy. Right? And, and, and we looked at, at others then. Um, we looked at uh, the Psalms where, where David wrote. We looked at the prophets uh, where the prophets wrote. And so all kind of a whole gamut of scripture. So this morning what I want to do is just kind of pick out some verses in the New Testament that describe the implications about how Messiah has come and argues that. And in the New Testament, it's a little bit different. In the Old Testament, it's all this Messiah's coming, this Messiah's coming. But in the New Testament, it's, it's more like a development. Okay, Messiah was born... In Bethlehem. And then through the Gospels, you got this discussion. Is he really the Messiah or is he not? Is, is he or is he not? He's, he's more like, like presented in the Gospels as the Messiah. But then by the time you get to the book of Acts, he's proclaimed as the Messiah. And then by the time you get to the Gospels, he's fully verified as the Messiah. And, and so there's kind of like this progression, which I, I trust that you will, you will see. So first verse I want to go to is Matthew chapter 16. Uh, in verse 16, we got six verses we're going to look at, and we need to really get through them quickly. So we're just going to drop down these verses. I'm just going to take them in uh, canonical order, just kind of going through to think about Messiah, how he has come. And Matthew 16 falls right in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew. Everything in the Gospel of Matthew leads up to this point, and everything after this point in the Gospel of Matthew really looks back at this point, because it's like the, the peak, the, the whole point of Matthew. We pick up the story in verse 13. Halfway through the ministry of Jesus, he called his disciples for a place of rest, actually up in Caesarea Philippi, where there's a, just a, a, a nice place of, of rest up there. And it says, now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, he asked them a good question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he asked the great question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And our verse right here is verse 16. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now you can easily translate this. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Because that's what Christ means. Christ means the Messiah. 
And, and, and so here, here, is, here is Jesus going through. Says, who do people talk about me? Like, and they say, well, there's John the Baptist. Who do you say they am? He says, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. He was the long-expected Messiah, born to set his people free. And then it's right here upon this truth that Jesus promises to build his church. Not the nation of Israel, mind you. He's going to build his church, right? There's a, there's a change, right? If he's the Messiah, he's going to build his kingdom, which is the church. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, right, they, they had for the first part of their ministry, had this veil over them. They sort of saw Jesus as the Messiah, but they didn't quite. But now the veil has been lifted and God shown in his heart to reveal this to him. And he says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, one of the reasons why the Jews reject Jesus today is because uh, Jesus doesn't quite fit their mold of their expected Messiah. They're, they're, they were expecting some religious political leader like we talked about last week, right? With the Pharisees or the Essenes or the Zealots kind of looking for this, fair, for this military, governmental, spiritual leader of some type, which the Jews today are looking for as well. But... But Jesus puts forth a different Messiah. He puts forth that of a suffering servant in accordance with the prophecies in Isaiah. He says in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and rise on the third day. So in other words, right, when he's going up, he's going to be killed. Yes, he is the Messiah, but he must suffer first. It's different, right? So that... That's why some of them didn't catch Jesus being the Messiah because they thought the Messiah was going to be this big political figure. And like the Jews of the day, Peter didn't like this because it was outside of his paradigm. Peter took him aside, verse 22, and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Peter didn't like it. And it took him some time even to grasp totally what that meant. It took some time for many people to grasp what that meant. But that's what the epistles are about, to explain that. Like Galatians 4, that Paul would later speak about our Messiah. He's come, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law by dying for our sins. Jesus redeemed us through his death, burial, resurrection from the dead. And that's the Messiah we need to embrace. This this crucified Messiah. We're going to be right with God. That's the only way, through this crucified Messiah. Well, our next passage this morning shows sort of the struggle that that people had as Messiah was coming into the public arena. Uh, Here he's identified as the Messiah, but Jesus, in verse 21, um, uh, he said, um, don't don't tell anyone. Verse 20, he strictly charged disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ. Because if everyone knew he was the Christ, things would be different in his ministry. We want to go like an incognito ministry, if you will. And we see his ministry coming in John chapter 7. So turn there. And um, there are lots of verses here in John chapter 7 that we can look at here. The whole chapter is speaking about the confusion of the Jews of Jesus' day. They didn't quite know for sure what to do with Jesus. Was he the Messiah? Was he not the Messiah? The religious authorities, right, they hated him. They wanted to arrest him. But are they really like... It's all this big confusion, and uh, we see this, the beginning of John chapter 7. We're going to start at the beginning, uh, reading some verses. It's the Feast of Booths, and we see Jesus having this discussion with his brothers about their holiday plans. 
After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He knew of his danger to go to Judea. So Judea's in the south, Galilee's in the north. He's in Galilee, but he's not going to go there because they're seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. This is the feast of Sukkot, where the, uh, the Jews would dwell in booths, in, in, in tents, if you will. So they feasted in tents to remind themselves that they were like in uh, temporary houses in the wilderness. So his brothers, actually mocking him, said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Here it is, verse 5, is the parenthetical expression that not even his brothers believed in him. They're saying, you claim to be this Messiah. Will you go and show yourself to be the Messiah? And then Jesus said, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So he sent them on, but through a change of circumstances, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, and he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? In fact, this is the whole, like if you think of John chapter 7, just big question marks, all these questions. Where is he? Who is he? Is he really the Messiah or not? And there was much muttering, verse 12, about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. And here we see the questions of Jesus. They're all looking for him. Some saying he's good. right? Some saying he's leading people astray, that he's bad. But, but all of them were, were quiet because the establishment was trying to kill them. Anyone who aligned with him, they, they might face the sword as well. But in verse 14, we see Jesus going public. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. And I would love for us to look at the teaching and be good and helpful, but our point this morning isn't so much at what Jesus taught as much as who Jesus was. And so we skip ahead to verse 25 after his teaching. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, for he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. He spoke about in uh, verse 6 before. And he said, um, verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So you kind of see him. Yes. Is he the Christ? No, he's not. When he comes, could it be? And the crowds that day were, were divided. They, they didn't know. So skip down to verse 40. We see this again. Then when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, and this is our verse. I just pulled out one, one verse here. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? I see the divide. Like some are convinced and some are not as Jesus has merely presented himself, doing the miracles, teaching as he was. 
And, and then they, they say this. It's really interesting. It brings us back to Christmas time. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there's a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, right? They, they just couldn't quite figure it out whether Jesus was the Messiah or not, whether he was there, whether he had come or not. And really we're brought back to the Christmas message because the Jews knew from Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem of the, of the lineage of David. But here it was Jesus coming from Galilee. They knew Jesus, right, born in Nazareth, and yet he ministered in Galilee. But he's got to come from Bethlehem. And they didn't know that he was born in Bethlehem. They was a lineage of David. He just grew up in a different place, in a different region. Sort of like, you know, if you if you know any of you know where I was born. You say, oh, no prophet comes from DeKalb where he grew up. None of you know where I was born. I was born in Chicago. That little town right to the east is where I was born, right? But you don't know. Like, they didn't know is, is what the issue was. It led to confusion during his ministry. And this division among the people that still exists. Is he the Messiah or not? And, and, and John, as he writes his gospel puts forth this confusion in the minds of the people. Is he or is he not? But make no mistake, if we go to our third passage, we'll see that, that the whole reason for the gospel, though, is to just cast away and, uh, all division and, and to bring clarity. Right? It brings us to our, our third passage this morning, John chapter 20 and verse 30. I'm not sure if you know this verse. You should know this verse. This verse is the whole purpose for... Uh, John writing his gospel, someday when I preach the gospel of John, this is the first verse that I will go to because it describes why he wrote. He had a purpose in mind. He wrote that we might believe, that we might have life in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 30 and then we'll go to 31. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Whereas there may have been confusion about the Jewish people, there's no confusion with John. He writes with crystal clarity. He writes that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is, you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. right? That you might believe that the Messiah has come and that his name is Jesus. And here's the good news, right? When you come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, you come to have life in his name. And this morning and, and every Sunday mornings we gather to church, we, we come to the scriptures. It's not just this intellectual pursuit, it's a life-giving pursuit. It, it's, it's a pursuit that when we believe in Jesus, we have life in his name, eternal life, that we might enjoy him forever, enjoying the, the, pro, the pleasures of his presence, as Psalm 1611 says. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's the path to life. That's why we sacrifice for Sunday mornings, which, by the way, is no sacrifice at all. I, you know, as I, as I go to the pool hall, I think about these guys. You know, they make a sacrifice on Monday nights to go and play pool because it's kind of a, a fun thing, and for them it's not a sacrifice. But for them also to come on Sunday morning, or some, for them it's like doesn't even compute. But for us, coming to Sunday morning is our joy, and it's our, it's our privilege to realize that Jesus is our life. It's the burden of the entire Bible, really, to direct us towards faith in Christ that we might have life. And as we work through the, the book of Acts, we're going to see Jesus proclaimed. And we're going to see, just as, as history unfolds itself, that the church begins to grow. 
The constant declaration of the, of the disciples is that Jesus is the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture, and he is the one to whom you need to look. So let's, let's go to our, our fourth verse here this morning. And, and again, I could have chosen lots of verses. I just, I just chose one, Acts chapter 9 and verse 22, which comes in the, the context of Paul's conversion. Um, if you remember, he was converted on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus by going house to house and, and dragging out anyone who professed to believe in Jesus, taking them bound, bring, taking them down to Jerusalem. He had letters from the synagogue authorities giving him authority to do this. And on his way up to Damascus, he was blinded as he saw this great light. And, and he was startled as he heard this loud voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was was struck blind, down to his feet, had to be led to the city, and for the next several days he prayed until this man named Ananias came and opened his eyes and told him how he must proclaim Jesus to the nations. And Paul, really, what he did, he experienced Zechariah 12, looking on him whom they have pierced, and he mourned as one mourns for an only son. And he came to understand as the Old Testament scriptures, I would have loved to talk to him in those days as they just came flooding across his mind. And, and maybe he thought about, oh, Genesis 3.15, oh, here's the one who came and, and conquered the seed of the serpent. Maybe he thought about Deuteronomy 18 and this prophet would come. Or, or Psalm 132 and the, and the Davidic promise that would come. Or Isaiah chapter 9 that speaks about this, uh, this baby that was born to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God. Maybe he looked at those things. And maybe he came to understand, and I'm sure his understanding came quite quickly because he knew the Old Testament scriptures very well. But with this paradigm now of Jesus is the one who fulfilled them and believing and having the veil taken off from his eyes. And even it says here, the scales fell from his eyes so that he could see not only physically but also spiritually. And we read in verse 19 that uh, for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That is, he was proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And how was he proving that? He was going to these Old Testament passages. He, he was going to Psalm 16, which demonstrated that he had to be raised from the dead. Right? And he, he was going and, and talking about the day of Pentecost and maybe Joel chapter 2. He was going to Psalm 110, which speaks about Christ being lifted high and exalted. He was going to 2 Samuel 7, which speaks about the Davidic promise to David. And all these pastors in the Old Testament, he's probably going to these dozens and dozens and dozens, proving relentlessly that Jesus was the Messiah. And it wasn't only here in Damascus that he preached this message, often throughout the book of Acts. All this message, they hone in right on Jesus, demonstrating him to be the Messiah. And even you see that in Acts chapter 17, similar sort of phrase, when he goes into Thessalonica, his custom was to go into the synagogue, and he goes into the synagogue and explains and proves, Acts 17, verse 3, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's the Messiah. This Jesus is the Messiah. And, 
it's interesting is that what Paul preached is the same message that we ought to preach as well. Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, we get the picture of the early church that was every day in the temple from house to house. They, they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. The, the early church went house to house, day to day, teaching that the Messiah was Jesus, that he has come. And, and now it's interesting for us is that we really, we aren't thinking about category Messiah. Like if, if you run into a typical American, right, I don't think they're anticipating Messiah or even having that category so much in their minds. Some is because we're not under bondage. Because we're part of a, a free country, we have much freedom here in our, in our day and age. They're not looking at that. They're, they're not even looking for any kind of deliverance or, or future, right? The, the Messiah has come. If you've preached that message to people, yes, it's true. But it needs to be contextualized a little bit because people are looking for the Messiah. But one of the things that they're probably looking for a little bit, or maybe they don't even realize, is that one of the things the Messiah brings is forgiveness, Right? The only way that they can maybe anticipate needing a Messiah is to understand their forgiveness, their need for forgiveness. So maybe, maybe, maybe the whole conviction of sin, which the Spirit does upon people, and you, you speak about, well, Jesus has come, right? the one who can grant forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a way of proclaiming Messiah. Dude, this world is not even looking for a Messiah, but, but feels right, the, the weight of sin upon them, if the Holy Spirit indeed is working upon them. But preaching the Messiah, preaching Jesus as the, the way of forgiveness, even if it's not quite in these religious categories of the Messiah coming. Well, let's, let's move on. I, uh, we've, we've looked at passages from the Gospels, we looked at passages in Acts, and now you think about, I'm thinking about the epistles. <laughs> and what sort of passage do you choose from the epistles? Like, Do you know how many times um, Paul says Jesus Christ or just Christ? Let me get, let's, let's guess. Okay, in Paul's epistle, how many times does Paul refer to Jesus as Christ? Zero. Not a little bit more than zero, okay? Uh, a little bit less than 500, but you went right to the top. I was going to go 300. Is that you, Parker? Who said that? 300. You got it, Trey. Good. Over 300. Uh, times in which he mentions the word Christ. And, and we have just, you know, right, Jesus, we just think about Jesus Christ. Do you know how the Jews refer to Jesus? Yeshua. How's it go? They start there as Yeshua Ha Hamashiach, right? You, you catch that, right? Yeshua, that is Jesus, Joshua, which means the saving one. Hamashiach. You, you recognize Mashiach? Do you know what Ha means? Yeshua HaMashiach, Ha means the, Jesus the Messiah. So when the Jews speak about Jesus Christ today, even it's Yeshua HaMashiach, it's Jesus the Christ. So also when Paul said Jesus Christ, it's with that in mind that Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one who's come and been our deliverer. So what passage you choose? Like, well... I chose, in light of, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the end of my message, I chose 1 Corinthians 15. Out of, out of all those we could have chosen, I chose 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. There's nothing special here, but this is very typical of Paul identifying Jesus as, as Christ. He begins in 
Chapter 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's the importance of the perseverance of the saints for salvation. He who endures to the end will be saved. God will hold us fast. And he says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here we see the death, burial, resurrection, and then the appearances of Jesus to demonstrate, to prove that his resurrection is real. And, and he goes back to the scriptures and says that when Christ died, interpreting them by the scriptures, he interprets them that he died for our sins. And when he says here that Christ, it's interesting here, I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins. He didn't say that. He said Christ. You might read this, that Messiah died for our sins. This is the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He's he's there in the past. What Jesus did was there in the past. And he died in the past for our sins. And in the past, he was buried. And then he was raised from the dead accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to everybody. And and so here's just a a simple passage we look at as we will celebrate the Lord's Supper in in a little bit that just thinks about why is it that we look back upon Jesus Christ? Because he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If we want to be right with God, have our sins washed away and cleansed, it's through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Well, let's look at one last verse and then we'll, we'll come back and think about the death of Christ. And this is just, again, just to, to get all the different genres of scripture I've just pulled. We, this message could have gone many, many different ways, but I just I pulled this one from Revelation thinking that I need one in, in Revelation, kind of the, the end times. And, and if, you, if you know the book of, the Re- of Revelation, you know that it uh, starts off with this glorious vision of Jesus, letters to the churches, um, and then Jesus in heaven, and then you got the, the seals which are being broken, and the wrath of God being poured out uh, on the trumpets. And uh, here we have kind of an interlude. We're not, not judgment coming down, but you have an interlude of joy and of the realization of what Revelation's all about so when the kingdom comes and when Jesus is alone established as the, the one who reigns forever. We see the seventh tr- angel blew his trumpet. And we have the bowl judgments. There's more judgment in the future. This is sort of like right in the middle. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It's no accident when Handel wrote his Messiah that he wrote the Alleluia Chorus just right in the middle of his Messiah because Revelation 11 is sort of like right in the middle of this judgment. He's coming, right? The the Messiah is coming to be the one who rules and reigns with his kingdom forever and ever 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 and ever. This is Christ the Messiah. And you see, I, I trust that you see the language of the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah. 
right? And this is of a, a second coming, right? So in some sense, I said the Jews earlier, I said the Jews are looking, saying Messiah is coming. Well, they missed that he has come. We also believe that Messiah is coming in his second coming to establish his rule and his reign uh, upon the earth. And it continues on with praise and honor to God. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshipped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who was, and for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple, a flash of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. It speaks about the time when, when God's judgment is coming down, and Jesus is being established as the one who has judged his enemies in his wrath. And he has taken his throne, and his enemies are being made a footstool, according to Psalm 110. And Jesus is reigning and ruling forever. He's come. And this is his second coming. The implication of his first coming is that he's just waiting right now. He's waiting for people to repent, that they might, they might give him glory and honor him. So what I'd like to do is even transition to the Lord's Supper, just really thinking about the fact that Messiah has come. And that he has died for our sins, but he's not died for, for everyone's sins. Right? Because it has here that there are some in Revelation 11 and verse 18 who are going to receive the wrath of God, who did not trust and believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a remembrance and a reminder of what Jesus did when he came, that Messiah did indeed came, come. And then on that last night when he said, this is my body is broken for you. This is the blood of my covenant. He's talking about what he would do in the next hours when he'd die upon the cross. And he told us to do this in remembrance of him, to remember the sacrifice of Christ. And the Lord's Supper is for, for all who would trust in Jesus, who all say, yes, I'm trusting the, the one who is going to come and rule and reign, and I want to be a part of the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. I want to be part of the the messianic kingdom, or I am a part of the messianic kingdom. When, when we drink, we, we drink you know, as, as fellow soldiers around the throne, around the, the, the king, as, as those who have conquered, as, as those who have, have victored. Yes, we're all part together. We're, we're, not, we're not those outside fighting against this Christ, saying, no, I don't believe him. We're a part of the inside. And say, yes, I believe him. So if you're on the inside and you're believing and trusting in Christ, walking rightly with him, celebrate and take the supper. But if you're in rebellion against the Lord... And you're disbelieving him. You're being like a Jew today, right? Who, who didn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Lord's Supper is, is not for you. Just, just whatever. Let the cup pass. Just, just don't drink. Because as uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says, you eat and drink judgment to yourself if you don't judge the body rightly. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing one last song talking about how Jesus is the Messiah. If during that time you need to go and get some, some cups from the back, you feel free to do that. But let me pray. Father, I, I do thank you that Messiah has come, <clears throat> that he was um, presented in the Gospels and he was proclaimed in Acts and vindicated and thoroughly explained in the epistles. 
Father, Messiah has come that we no longer need to look to this Messiah who's going to come and redeem us because we have known redemption of our sins. But there will be a time when Jesus will come back again with his great power and might, God, and will we'll set all wrongs right. And all those, all those things that are unjust here upon the earth, which there are many things, God, all those will be made right. When you come and you claim the kingdom for yourself, and when you come and claim the kingdom for Messiah. And uh, so, Father, I, I would pray even now as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper, I, I pray that you would help us even to see and examine our hearts, how we are, are sinners and in need of grace. And yet we have found through faith in Jesus, we have found forgiveness in him. And Father, we would pray that as we would eat this bread and we would drink this cup together, that it might be a, a wonderful, glorious time in which we, we think and reflect again upon what it all, all meant that you're the Messiah who came. So stir our hearts, God, even in this moment, God, to, to lift you high in our hearts, to, to assure our hearts even deeper that, yes, Jesus was the Messiah who came. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.